Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Mikuchi, and you are listening to the Jazz's podcast. <laughs> Everybody, Jazz's online editor Matt Mikuchi here, welcoming you to a new episode of our podcast series of conversations with some of the most amazing artists on the jazz and creative music scene today. A series that we simply like to call the Jazz's Podcast, and is brought to you in conjunction with Jazz's Vinyl Club, a series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz's editors, and that is an absolute must for lovers of jazz and vinyl alike. Saxophonist Javon Jackson came into international prominence touring and recording with the legendary Art Blakey as a member of his Jazz Messengers. Since then, he has collaborated with some of the greatest jazz artists and grew to prominence as a composer, band leader and improviser through a diverse range of albums and projects. In addition to his work as a musician and performer, Jackson is renowned as a jazz educator and has been the director of the Jackie McLean Institute of Jazz at the University of Hartford since 2013. His latest album, released earlier this year, is a collaboration with poet and activist Nikki Giovanni, who curated a program of hymns, spirituals and gospel classics for The Gospel According to Nikki Giovanni. We talk about this new project, about Jackson's own artistic journey, the state of jazz education and culture at large, and more in today's episode of the Jazz Is Podcast. So fire up an audio teeny and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. Hi, Javon. Welcome to the Jazz's podcast. Thanks for being. Uh, thanks for the uh, invitation, and it's uh, it's an honor because I'm, I'm a fan of uh, Jazz's and uh, Michael and everything that he's been doing for the music for uh, the past decades. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I got to say, it's it's truly a tremendous honor to speak with you. And and hopefully we'll be able to, you know, have a real nice conversation about some of your, the aspects of your life, your 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 history, your art and projects, including some of your latest works as well. But but I just kind of wanted to start off with a, with a little fun question, because I read that you originally, as a kid, I guess, had thought about becoming a drummer. Is this true? Right. In the beginning, I wanted to play drums with my father. Thought they were a little loud, not a little loud, too loud. So that was uh, <laughs> taken off the table, the drums. Right. So how did you eventually then begin to gravitate towards the saxophone? Well, during that time when you can pick an instrument, and again, I was interested in the drums, and I was vetoed, so then the saxophone came next in line. Was there anyone in particular that in- inspired you? Well, ironically, my father and mother played lots of jazz music in the house. And my father... Even though he mentioned he was, well, he, he told me I couldn't play the drums. I don't know if because he loved the saxophone so much, but he loved the tenor saxophonist named Gene Ammons. So 
I heard a lot of Gene Ammons in my, in my home as a young guy. And, uh, I loved him. And there was a saxophonist I used to record with quite a bit named Sonny Stitt. And I fell in love with his playing during that same time. And, uh, by the time I was about 13 years old or so, uh, Mr. Stitt came to Denver where I was, where I grew up. And my father took me to see Sonny Stitt at 13. And that was a unbelievable, uh, inspirational opportunity to meet him and go back and talk to him. He signed a couple of records that I had brought. And that was uh, very pivotal for my uh, desire to become a jazz musician, seeing him live. I mean, so it sounds like, you know, from even from an early age, you knew this was what you wanted to do. Yes. Uh, from the time I saw Sonny Stitt, it was definitely in stone that I wanted to be a jazz musician who lived in New York and traveled around the world and made records. That was after seeing him and those few moments of talking to him just kind of sealed my fate in terms of what I felt in my mind I wanted to do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, also thinking of those early days, then it's interesting how, you know, we talked about early in your career, you uh, might have become a drummer <laughs> if it hadn't been perhaps for the fact that the drums are, are too loud. <laughs> but then, of course, you got to work with some of the uh, one of the all time great drummers, uh, Art Blakey. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, exactly. I guess the drum situation never really it wasn't a big argument. It was just a lot of young people that they want to play the guitar or the drums. And so that was kind of a natural thing. But the irony is that I got to play with Art Blakey because during that time, uh, again, my parents had a great record collection and on the back of one of Art's records, uh, Night at Birdland with Clipper Brown and Lou Donaldson and, uh, Horace Silver. On the back of the record cover, he made a mention, when these get too old, I'm going to get some younger musicians. And as I started doing more research into Art Blakey, I realized that, uh, Art had made this career of supporting young people and giving young musicians an opportunity to travel all over the world and play with him. And so it was around that time, 14 or 15. And I said, wow, well, I'm going to go to New York thinking out loud. I'll play with Art Blakey, <laughs> which was kind of a not a insane statement, but a statement of just only a young person uh, thinking out, uh, thinking like that would think whatever could come to fruition. But that was the goal to play with Art Blakey. And then I was fortunate a couple of years later after that to meet uh, Branford Marsalis and Winton. And, uh, Branford really, uh, was the person that gave me some wisdom and some ideas on how to, uh, become a jazz messenger. So he, he deserves a lot of credit for supporting me and giving me some early uh, advice. So, so it sounds like, you know, I didn't know this, uh, you kind of sort of had the ambition to play with him, to kind of be one of the, in the jazz messengers. Well, <laughs> so like I said, I was in the McDonald's All-American Band in high school and they take two uh, young people from each state in America as seniors. And so the representative from my year from uh, Louisiana was Delphia Marcellus, who's uh, Brant Branford's younger brother. And uh, I was aware of Branford because he and Winton uh, had played with Art Blakey and uh, obviously the history of Art Blakey, but at that time to see young people just a few years older than me playing with Art Blakey and, and, and went and exploded on the, on the scene, uh, music scene in terms of uh, his uh, abilities and uh, talent and so forth and so on. So uh, 
I let Bradford know when I finally got a chance to be with him one on one that I wanted to uh, play with the Jazz Messengers. And so we got together and, and he suggested I go to Berkeley College of Music and uh, study with uh, Billy Pierce, who was a former Jazz Messenger, who could help me uh, with uh, saxophone stuff and nuts and bolts. And so that's what I did. I went to Berkeley, got a chance to get around Billy Pierce. There were other uh, former Jazz Messengers and one current Jazz Messengers. Jazz Messenger that were, was uh, currently there at the university, well, at Berkeley, the college, and Donald Brown was playing piano with Art Blakey at that time, and uh, James Williams lived in the area, was a former Jazz Messenger, so I was able to kind of hover around these uh, guys and uh, get knowledge about music and learn and hang out, and also uh, Donald kind of prepared me when uh, John Toussaint, the tenor saxophonist at that time, left the band. So Donald helped me learn some of the material. And largely due to Donald uh, providing the opportunity to come down to sit in, I got to sit in and it was hard kind of through that process. I was thinking as well, because of course you worked with so many of the all-time greats and so many of the greats of the past who truly left an indelible mark on the history of the of jazz, of this art form. Did that somehow then contribute to you eventually embracing a career as well as in performance as a performer, as a as a composer, as a musician, also in jazz education? Right. At that time, jazz education was nowhere near a idea of reality at all. <laughs> I was just so happy to be performing, yeah. so happy to be touring, making recordings and just trying to find my way in New York City, uh, living in that in that environment. And uh, when I left Berkeley to go uh, and pursue this career with Art Blakey, my mother uh, didn't want me to leave Berkeley. She wanted me to get a degree. She felt that I would need a degree uh, later and was just fearful that, well, how can you have this career as a jazz musician? So I told her at that time that I would give her my, uh, I gave her my word that I would come back to school and finish the degree up because I was, let's say just about halfway and I was studying a music education degree. So she said, okay, um, you gave me a word. So you're on the record. So as years went on, she kept reminding me that I, you said you would go back and get your degree. So then I went back through Berkeley and was able to get the degree. I changed the, uh, the major, but then I got my degree. Then after getting the, uh, a degree in professional music, uh, began a, a really close relationship and still have, fortunately, with Ron Carter. And I was telling Ron this same kind of story, how I got to get the uh, professional uh, music degree. And he said, you should get a master's. And I said, well, I don't know about that. And he said, well, yeah, you should get one because you'll probably teach one day. And I said, I'll, I'll never teach. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. And he said, yes, you will. And just trust me, get the degree. And so it was through his urging. And at that time, uh, I was doing some adjunct teaching, but then I, I decided to go ahead and get the degree while still performing. And so that is kind of how that occurred. And again, largely due to Art Blake, I mean, uh, through Art and, and then meeting uh, Ron and those opportunities, uh, followed themselves into kind of how things happen. So in a nutshell, you just have to be willing to follow instructions. 
<laughs> well, you know, I mean, so, it's it sounds yeah. like it might have been also challenging, you know, to to be touring and you know studying at the same time. Those must have been really intense days. Yeah, it was intense, but the uh, the SUNY Purchase had flexibility. Again, I was actually teaching there at the time, so I was able to do coursework and things while also being an adjunct uh, teacher. But um, again, at the at the master's level, you're able to streamline your course studies. So they're all connected into the things that you're already doing. And me doing these things professionally allowed it and made it easier for me to transition to coursework because I was doing the work professionally. Well, see, see, this we're in the, in the topic and you did say that, you know, back then, you know, maybe the, the, the late eighties, early nineties, you know, jazz education was just not in the state, you know, in the conditions that it's in now, let's just <laughs> put it that way. Uh, so, I mean, How's, how has that evolution kind of come to fruition over the years? And what does it mean to you? What do you feel the role of a jazz educator is? And are there any defining traits that characterize the role of a jazz educator in 2022? Wow. Well, I mean, I look at working with Art Blakey. What better jazz educator has ever lived? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he didn't teach it. He didn't teach academically. But what he gave you is an opportunity and then what he would also give you is words of wisdom and advice, not so much what to do, but sometimes not what what not to do. And sometimes that helps you more than someone telling you what to do is just kind of saying, well, don't do that one again. And then you realize, OK, uh, let's let's look at why he said that and let's look at all the other options. But let's maybe avoid some kind of uh, thing that he's seen and that he could see in you that would help you uh, prosper. So. In the way jazz education, again, is, is gone since the mid-60s, starting with uh, the dean of jazz education, we call him God rest his soul, David Baker, which was moved forward. So we look at uh, opportunities to be in, in school and to, uh, in one way, now have jazz really become relevant in uh, academia and some of uh, what we might call uh, academic situations. Whereas 30 or 40, 50 years ago, it wasn't as uh, respected and looked at as legitimate. And so it's still, in a way, in a big way, uh, a fight or a struggle, let's say it like that, to make sure that everyone in the building understands that we just don't get up every morning, put on a tie, and things just go really, really well. It's actually a lot of work, a lot of study, but also for the jazz musician, to immerse himself or herself and all the other aspects of music so that you can be applicable uh, in a way that will allow your music to grow in other facets of the chamber world or uh, the vocal uh, music, if that is your choice. Now, obviously, opportunities maybe to uh, collaborate with the dance department or with the theater department, which I've done. So there's a lot of layers and a lot of opportunities there, but the idea that you can go to college and then you're just going to be a great jazz musician because you graduated from college, that's ridiculous <laughs> because you have to be able to go out and play in front of people and that will let you know how well you are uh, succeeding at your art and succeeding at your ability to kind of quote-unquote pontificate as an instrumentalist. And how to put a set together, how to speak to the audience, how to work with your band, how to be a good band leader, how to make sure 
Uh, all those kinds of things are in place too. And then also ultimately how to get gigs. Because you come, everyone that comes out of the university or that's starting to work professionally doesn't have an agent or manager. And so I was fortunate because I got to watch Art Blakey. I got to watch how he had management, but that he uh, largely did it on his own. And then when you started to maybe get close to a Dizzy Gillespie and others and watch how they uh, carry themselves or the Ray Browns of the world, and a lot of it was themselves handling things, being their CEO, but then they had uh, support and uh, colleagues in their in the agency world that could could bring things home. Summer, not a bit of breeze. Neon signs are shining through the tired trees. Lovers walking to and fro. Everyone has someone and a place to go. Now, listen. The legendary poet and activist Nikki Giovanni makes this rare vocal appearance on this interpretation of Night Song, one of the tracks from her collaboration with Javon Jackson on the gospel, according to Nikki Giovanni. The track was included in part as a tribute to the late great Nina Simone. And speaking of this collaboration, Nikki Giovanni says of the songs she curated for the record in an official statement that these songs are so important. They comforted people through times of slavery. And during recent years, we needed them to comfort us again. But a lot of the students today do not know about the history of these songs, and they should. So I'm out here putting water on the flowers, because they need a drink. The Gospel, according to Nikki Giovanni, was released earlier this year on the Solid Jackson label. And if you love jazz and vinyl, be sure to check out Jazz Is Vinyl Club, a new series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz Is editors and featuring some of the most exciting jazz artists from yesterday and today that we regularly cover in the print version of Jazz Is, jazzis.com and these Jazz Is podcasts. Go to jazzis.com and click on Join Vinyl Club to find out more. But for now, here's the second part of our conversation with Javon Jackson, picking up where we left off just a couple of minutes ago, talking about the need for artists to be dynamic in their creative and professional approach to music. And night comes And the town awakes Sounds of children calling And the squeal of bricks It's interesting what you're saying because, uh, well, it made me think of a couple of things, you know, the whole aspect of you have to know which gigs to get or where to find those gigs or what to even try out. Uh, you know, we are just coming out of a... I guess we are coming out of it finally, at least, eventually. Uh, we will be coming out of it, uh, hopefully. Uh, of a period where that was very difficult for a lot of musicians because, you know, as venues and bars closed, it kind of prompted musicians to kind of try to figure out a way in which they could just carry on and play music and bring the music to people. So 
do you find that that was challenging for you? And did anyone come to you for advice? And what would you what would you say to them? Right. I think that I uh, got people who were interested in what I was thinking about. And then I was speaking to other individuals. And I think the one thing that our Blakey always prepared us for was that if you're working, it's your fault. If you're not working, that's your fault too. <laughs> so <laughs> no matter what, even before there was a pandemic, you still had to be at a keen eye on how to be successful and how to look in the mirror and say, okay, this isn't working or this is working or I have to change this or I have to uh, evolve in this way. So we're always in a point of self-reflection. So I think the pandemic gave others, including myself, maybe more opportunity to do self-reflection. But um, I'm fortunate to speak to, to Sonny Rollins uh, frequently. And one of the things that Sonny said during the pandemic was, don't forget, Javon, there's a lot of things to do in the house. Yeah. There's a lot of things that you can do inside. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so a lot of times some of the refinement that we might not have been working on as musicians because we might have been outside a lot when you were inside and you had to really reflect on some of the things that you can't do and really be objective about that and find another aspect to uh, your arsenal as a musician. And uh, so, yeah, it, it did put the clamps on touring and some traveling and earning uh, a salary for sure, but also allowed you to kind of um, maybe think about how to maybe reinvent oneself and also how to uh, position yourself in different ways as opposed to just playing your instrument how the what's the other ways that you can create uh sources of income right uh, thinking of uh, outside of the proverbial box let's say which actually uh makes me think of something that i i, I read that you that you did in the past and uh kind of fits the bill when it comes to doing this because uh, you know aside from being a lover of music i'm also a lover of, of cinema and when i found out about your project from uh, i guess about 10 years ago where you scored an early alfred hitchcock film a silent film called the lodger i said to myself i just gotta ask him about it <laughs> because i've attended a number of screenings of silent films with live music by uh, by a number of musicians in different configurations and uh, I guess it's something that kind of, you know, when it comes to that, musicians maybe just uh, sometimes don't even know that's an opportunity. That's something that they could work with. But uh, as far as this experience was concerned, I just wanted to ask you, uh, what was that like? Did Was that kind of the case or an example of a project that kind of encourage you, encourages you to challenge yourself, to think outside the box, like we said, and maybe to work with music in a different way? Right. So as um, I'm living in the New York area, Brooklyn specifically, and during the time of, of Spike Lee and his emergence as a fantastic director, I got the opportunity to perform and rehearse with his father, who's a brilliant genius of a musician named Bill Lee, great bassist and composer. Well, Mr. Lee was composing for Spike Lee's movies at that time. So I got a chance to really be around him and, and, and watch him and pick his brain and learn about composing for film. So out of my time with him and watching him and then others that began to do more composing for film jazz musicians and then doing research about other jazz musicians who have done for film prior to that got me, uh, the desire burning to have that opportunity. 
So then in 2000, I think it was nine, I got this opportunity to write uh, a silent uh, a score to the silent film, Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger, which was a great experience because, number one, normally when you write for a film, you sit down and you discuss it with the director. Well, I don't get to discuss it with Alfred Hitchcock, <laughs> obviously, because he's not here. So then I had to, what I had, when they sent me the film, I stripped all of the, the music. I never heard the music to the original score. I just didn't want to hear it at that time. And then I started from the very beginning and just went to the very end. And you know, it's unique with sound of film because there's no dialogue, only words. Whereas a film, of today would have words and you'd have to find a way to get the music to uh, not overtake the words per se and be in the way in different situations. So that was unique because if the film was say, I think it was an hour and I think it was hour and 42 minutes, somewhere like the hour and 26 minutes or something like that. If I'm, it's been a while. Matt. But anyway, I had to find a way to fuse my music from the very beginning throughout simultaneously. So it was pretty much going the whole time. And then live, we performed it. So we pretty much were playing all the time. So I might stop for a few bars or the trumpet might stop or the piano still going. And so the music was just a kind of continuous situation because you had a live audience and you had to engage. So it was an incredible opportunity for me to do it. <clears throat> and I had some very famous, um, writers that I reached out to that said, well, you'll never be able to do this your first time out. <laughs> and um, I'm glad they were wrong. That's Because I was able to do it. And it, <laughs> and it went well. And so ever since then, I said, wow, I'm still looking for another opportunity. And just recently this year, I got the opportunity to write a score for a documentary for a great uh, artist. Uh, so it's been since that time to now that I got the next opportunity but that one opportunity way back then had me uh, kind of primed for this situation. Yeah. But I sat down with the director on this, we did the spotting session, talked about what he needed, what he was looking for. And then we wrote all the music out I did. And then we went in the film, went into the studio with the director and he's there. So uh, the second opportunity came and hopefully the next opportunity will come quicker than it took for the second opportunity to come. But it's something that I've really always wanted to do. And uh, yeah. It was uh, another aspect to musicianship. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it sounds, it sounds, uh, like it would, would have been a thrilling experience and, uh, also a way, like I said, to kind of interact with, uh, with different elements and maybe challenge yourself a little bit. Uh, because, uh, you know, one thing, one thing that I'm thinking of as well is that, uh, maybe like there's a, there's a tendency that needs to be avoided. And it's, you know, like, uh, practitioners or artists in a specific type of art forms kind of remaining in that category and feeling eventually a bit trapped. So going out there and working with, you know, uh, whether it's with dancers or whether it's with, with, painters photographers or you know a filmmaker from uh you know a long time ago and the images of a film that were shot uh, many decades before uh, you you know wrote the music for it that's uh that's an interesting type of interaction it's a very dynamic and lively interaction it sounds like the more opportunities i can have to uh do things that allow me to stumble is always a great thing. If I'm stumbling or if I'm challenged with something and I'm struggling on this, I'm always going to grow. So there's nothing like t 
taking a chance. If I don't take a chance and I don't fumble and I don't fall, you can't grow. So in January, I'm doing this. Uh, I'm playing with a, a Bangkok Symphony Orchestra, playing a piece that was written for me, a chamber piece. So the opportunity and the willingness to try this is going to help me grow as opposed to saying, well, I'm just going to keep uh, playing jazz music and not really worry about that opportunity. So to expand and to try to be more comprehensive, you have to take these shots and to see what happens in that. That's, that's the only thing I know. That's all I know is to take a chance. Well, well, that sounds great. And of course, uh, this kind of brings us to, uh, your, your latest album, I guess, uh, the gospel according to Nikki Giovanni, uh, this, uh, splendid and compelling, uh, work, uh, and, uh, collaboration with this uh, amazing, great poet and activist. I mean, uh, can you tell me a bit more about this project and also how it came about? Right. Well, Nikki Giovanni here. And, and what country are you in again? You're in. I'm in Ireland. <laughs> You're in Ireland. So, yeah. <laughs> so this, this, this person. Actually, boy, I, I, Gio- I should add, like, I'm in Ireland. I grew up here and I was born in, in Italy. So. <laughs> oh, you're born in Italy, but you yeah. live in Ireland. Wow. Well, you're quite a man. So anyway, uh, I, uh, I met Nikki Giovanni because I brought her here to the university. And my world and, and, and most of us here in America recognize her as this incredible scholar and artist and poet who uh, was very uh, involved in the 60s. And so she knew people like Muhammad Ali firsthand. Uh, there's interviews of her with James Baldwin. She knew Martin Luther King. She knew so many incredible artists. So I wanted to bring her to my university where I'm the chair of the Jack McLean Institute of Jazz Studies to talk to young people about her struggle. I think it's important for young people to hear firsthand what was experienced as opposed to me trying to explain it. So individuals like her, I'd bring them to the university for uh, Black History Month. And so she came She received an honorary doctorate, thankfully. And then while she was here, there was a there was some music being piped in the auditorium through the auditorium that she heard was Charlie Hayden and the great jazz pianist Hank Jones playing spirituals. She thought that was great. She'd love to hear more than that. Fast forward, I called her up and said, would you pick spirituals for me, 10 spirituals for my next recording? And she picked them. She said, I'd like to do it, but I'd like to sing on one because I was friends with Nina Simone and I'd like to do something. I'd like to try to sing a piece for her to be remembered. And so that's kind of how it happened. Well, during the pandemic, things were shut down. We couldn't really get in the studio. And so finally, after a year or so after this, I said, you know what, I'm going to tough it out and find a way to get it done as a great studio within my area. So we, the band, we came up, we recorded all the music up here in Connecticut. Then we flew down to the engineer and myself. We flew to Roanoke, Virginia, and we recorded it, her, her aspect, the one track that she sang on. Then we put the CD out and it came out February of this year. And we've been touring pretty good with it. We've had some really uh, rewarding performances. We just, I did a, well, something separate for her book came out, a new, a new, one of her newer books, uh, most recent book on, uh, called The Library. It's basically about young people, African American children embracing the library again. And so, and her, as a young person, she spent a lot of time in the library. She'd like to see more people in general in the library, but definitely people of color. So we did something at the Library of Congress. Later this month, we're doing something at uh, Kennedy Center. And then next year, we're doing a performance at a, a really unique festival called Big Ears, which is in Knoxville, Tennessee, in addition to other performances we've been doing. So we've been quite busy and uh, it's been a rewarding relationship. And I've been very fortunate to have her now as a friend. 
if to put it like that. Yeah, yeah, but it, but I mean, it's also great as well because it did make me want to find out more about her. You know, after listening to to the music. Uh, so I think yeah. it's the same for a new generation of maybe maybe listeners. And uh, and I also, mm. by the way, stumbled upon this two hour dialogue between uh, between her and James. Baldwin, which is just a yeah. fascinating conversation. It's a two-hour conversation uh, that was broadcast yeah. on television, and it sort of yeah. made me long for maybe a time when I don't know these. It was maybe I don't know. Maybe it's just an idealized opinion that I have, but this type of intellectual cultural dialogue was uh, maybe a bit easier to find, or there was a bit more space. I don't know. I mean, do you do you think of that? I mean. What, what do you feel is, I mean, is there any space for culture in, in this day and age with all the digital evolutions? What's yeah, the role of there, culture in this there, there's always There's always space for culture and there's always space for dialogue if you want to have dialogue. Mm-hmm. Here since here at the university, I've been at here at University of Hartford now, it's in my 10th year. And some of the people that I've been dialoguing about some of the most sensitive subjects you would never have dreamed that I would be speaking to those people about sensitive uh, subjects regarding their life and regarding my life. So, and they're not people of color. So you just never know what you have to do in this life, in this world, I feel, to be applicable for success. You only have to do one thing. And the one thing is be willing. <laughs> Most people aren't willing. And you're going to say, well, Javon, explain that. No, it's a very simple thing. Are you willing? Are you willing to uh, make yourself vulnerable and make yourself applicable that you don't know everything? And once you can say, I don't know, things will be fine. But most people think they know. So I'm quick to say, I don't know <laughs> because I need all the wisdom that I can get. So the quicker I say, I don't know, and the quicker I can say, I'm willing to trust somebody else. I think that's 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 the beginning of me having. That's when Javon can be in a successful space. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, Javon, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate you enjoyed our conversation with Javon Jackson and I encourage you to check out The Gospel According to Nikki Giovanni his historic collaboration with the legendary poet, activist and educator Nikki Giovanni which was recently released this year on the Solid Jackson label and if you love jazz and vinyl be sure to also check out our Jazz Is Vinyl Club join the club and we will send you four premium limited edition color vinyl albums mailed directly to you Just go to jazzace.com and click on Join Vinyl Club for more. And as music from the gospel according to Nikki Giovanni plays us out, I encourage you to keep an eye out for more Jazzace podcasting content, a print magazine, and other great content available to you on a regular basis on our regularly updated website, jazzace.com. And if you like what you see, you can always subscribe for more. Till the next time, this is Matt Nakuchi signing off. See you soon.